I feel like when I would eat that fast food that I craved so much every single day that my brain, when I would get a chance to eat it, would light up like a Christmas tree. AJ, is that kind of what these brain scans are going to show? Absolutely. It's going to blow your mind that the same part of the brain gets hijacked. It lights up. And yes, it may not be as grave as say heroin addiction in terms of the consequences but it can be for some people people do lose their life to food addiction maybe not so much directly but by the diseases that it causes like diabetes Hi, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving this show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Today's show is all about the truth about weight loss. You know, from being obese as a child and carrying those extra pounds into adulthood, it seems like no matter what it is that we try, losing weight just is not easy. And the fact remains, this is the ironic thing of it all, is that those popular diet programs that you see advertised on TV and in magazines and online, well, they are actually fueling the obesity epidemic. As a matter of fact, there are studies that have been done that have shown that those programs are the very things that are likely to cause you to gain weight. Oh, the irony there. So today on the show, we are talking about the truth about weight loss. And joining me to discuss that are two people who know a whole heck of a lot about that, one of whom is a friend of the show. You know her very well, Chef AJ. You know, she has maintained a dramatic weight loss for many years now. But also today, you will be hearing from somebody who you probably are not familiar with. And that is Chef AJ's partner in crime at what they call the Truth About Weight Loss Summit. This is a gentleman by the name of Toby. And while Toby himself has never struggled with his weight, he was really just struck by the standard American diet when he came here as an exchange student from Germany in high school. He witnessed firsthand how the portions are out of control, the fat is out of control, the amount of fast food and pizza and grease is out of control in the standard American diet and the toll that that was taking on his host family and how that in turn with some medical issues involving his mom are what drew him to the idea of a brighter and healthier future and helping other people. So today we will be talking about their incredible stories and the truth about weight loss. What makes it so hard and what can be done to overcome that? We'll be talking about that and their summit. And then Dr. Barnard will also be on the program today to talk about seven things that patients wish their doctors knew about food and their heart. The connection between diet and heart health, that is irrefutable. It's undisputable. It is fact that the poorer your diet, the more strain that puts on your heart. Conversely, the healthier you eat. The more fiber that's in your diet, the more fruits, the more vegetables, 
the healthier your heart can be. We've talked about this at length. So today, Dr. Barnard and I are going to be talking about the seven things patients wish that their doctors knew about food and heart health. But we start with the truth about weight loss. What is the truth about weight loss? You know, there is, I'm not so sure that there is just one particular answer to that, but I do know that there is a whole heck of a lot of misinformation that is floating around in the ethosphere, as it were. And so my guests today are two people who are working tirelessly to really clear up that confusion and get to the bottom and answer that question, what is the truth about weight loss. And I'm so privileged to be joined today by Chef AJ. Thank you so very much for being here. Oh, thank you, Chuck. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And Toby Weiwolfen, who is making his Exam Room podcast debut. Thank you so very much for being here, Toby. Well, I'm excited. Can't wait to talk to you. Thanks for having us. And as people are watching this, as people are hearing this, you are really in the midst of this all-encompassing summit that really gets to the bottom, as I said, about the truth of weight loss. And AJ, I mean, we're talking about 40 or so of the world's leading obesity experts who will be speaking at this. Yeah, I'm so excited, really. And this year, this year, including a childhood obesity expert, too, because we feel that even though children probably aren't going to watch the summit, their parents will. So we're really excited to get one that is, can specialize in childhood obesity. That's huge. As a matter of fact, I was just having a conversation the other day with uh, Dr. Yami and she's a pediatrician, plant-based, and she and I were talking about, you know, why is it that, you know, children are having such a hard time now struggling with their weight? And then even going so far as to take the conversation to, well, we think that as kids, we're invincible and parents think the same way as well, that, you know, we can eat whatever we want right now and there will be no penalty. But by the time that kid reaches 20, 30, 40 years of age, they have to pay that toll for the cheeseburger they're eating in fifth grade. Yeah, I, I remember, I think, you know, there's so many moments of the summit that, that stuck with me. But I remember when she said that sometimes she'll have a, a very young child that is so obese, they can't get up on the table by themselves. And to see them struggle, she says it just breaks her heart. Toby, I want to turn to you because this was your brainchild, essentially. And so when you hear, I mean, you look like such a, a fit individual. And so when you hear about a child who's struggling with their weight so much, what, why did you feel compelled to, to get involved and to kind of bring this message forward? Um, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of reasons to it, obviously. Um, the, the health aspect as well. I've personally never struggled with my weight, um, but I had the privilege of living in the US for a year um, with a great host family. And um, I remember they all were struggling with their weight. And um, we were talking about kids. Um, one of the, the, the sons there in the family um, at 11 years old, um, he, he was like, almost like a barrel running around. And it was just so heartbreaking to see. He was obviously being mocked in school, um, being teased. It's just, it's so heartbreaking. And um, to know once I started working in this field um, to understand why, how companies target kids, um, which is something that we'll dive into in the summit as well. 
um, how how difficult it is to even get off those foods in a sense um, because they are so addictive. And we we have um, this year for the first time uh, uh, one of the experts sharing MRI scans of what happens in our brains when we eat those foods and. Um, and kids being kind of the weakest, if parents, especially like you said, they maybe say, okay, you know, they're invincible, let them run with it, they enjoy the food, at least they're eating something. And then before we know it, the biology changes, they might be um, damaged for life. So there has something has to be done. And um, once I had the opportunity to do something, I'm just thrilled to be partnering with AJ um, uh, to, to bring everyone the summit and uh, spread the word. Yeah, I am fascinated by the idea of those brain scans. Being a food addict myself, I will never say that I'm a former food addict. I think, you know, just like with any other uh, substance that you, you've battled, you know, once an addict, always an addict. So recovering. But I, I feel like when I would eat that fast food that I craved so much every single day that my brain, when I would get a chance to eat it, would light up like a Christmas tree. AJ, is that kind of what these what these brain scans are going to show? Absolutely. Because, you know, even though I'm plant-based myself and most of the speakers happen to be plant-based, we, we have people on that are just researchers in the field of food addiction that are going to show this to you, that it's going to blow your mind that the same part of the brain gets hijacked. It lights up. And yes, it may not be is grave as say heroin addiction in terms of the consequences, but it can be for some people. People do lose their life to food addiction, maybe not so much directly like getting behind the car and, and getting into an accident, but by the diseases that it causes like diabetes, for example. No question about it. And, and uh, people do, I mean, you look at uh, what, what is it right now? You know, 43% of Americans are obese and more than three out of four are overweight. So you're talking about a huge issue that still, I don't think is being talked about nearly enough. The fact that there's a reason why you see a McDonald's on every other corner. It's because these foods are created and, and it sounds such like a conspiracy, but the foods are created for you to crave them more and more and more and more. It's just that perfect combination of fat and salt and sugar. And it just, it, it just lights up that brain. And it's like, I want more for me. You know, I will tell you, and you, and you can speak to this a little bit as well, uh, as far as kicking the, the habit. But for me, it was way easier to quit smoking than it ever was to put down the seven layer burrito from Taco Bell. Oh, I agree. I might. Oh, yeah. We talked about this before. You were more of the, sh the fat salt guy. I was more of the sugar fat girl, but I used to smoke too, believe it or not. And I'm asthmatic and smoking was a piece of cake compared to giving up the piece of cake. I, I bet. I bet. And and Toby, how much you live right now in Germany? I'm I'm curious, how much more does the average American eat like fast food, the McDonald's, the Burger King thing like that? How much more is eaten here compared to the typical German diet? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Obviously, the, the typical diet almost around the world is becoming more and more convenience food and fast food. So that's changing as well. Um, that being said, I do feel that um, the American culture is more innovative in that sense. And there's positives and, and there's some negatives to it as well, obviously. And um, the, the world kind of adapts many, many of those innovations. Um, so while we're not there yet, it is going to that place where you see you know, people driving to McDonald's for the drive through and 
just just eating in their cars or um, we have bakeries so our subway is replaced by local bakeries and people you know just queuing getting a sandwich and on on their way they go um, no veggie in sight um, so so it is it is very similar it's not there in that sense um, but the availability that you addressed is also one of the tactics and one of the speakers is going to address what tactics those companies use and making food available, readily available, like almost putting it in our faces, right? It just it just triggers that initial like instinct that we have as a as a animal to to consume those foods. Um, so it's it's very very fascinating and so many aspects in this summit um, that touch on getting to the core of the problem, which isn't the person, but it's it's most always the environment. Yeah, we're going to peel back a few of the layers of that onion here during our conversation today, getting to the truth about weight loss. But I want to stick with your trip to America and go back to that for a second. How how jarring was it to see the difference? I know that you said that they're kind of similar, but for the first time that you stepped foot in this country and you began eating that standard American diet for a year, you know, how much uh, how jarring was that for you to your body to adapt to that? Yeah, I think the um, I remember the first night I was was in the U.S. We ordered a gigantic pizza. I've never seen a pizza. <laughs> you know, it comes in those square boxes. It's a square pizza. You know, in Germany we we are lucky to have Italian influence come over with their style of pizza, but the American pizza, you know, big and square, and the whole thing was gone. And I think we ordered two or three for the night and uh, watched some wrestling on TV. So it was like full immersion first night. Um, and I just thought to myself, oh, man, this is this is going to be different. Um, and then in the school cafeteria, you know, the pizza trend continued. But um, they had a salad bar. And I think I was the only one trying to pick something from the salad bar. But they didn't have any, you know, like variety. It was more like a side thought. It wasn't even focused on. And there weren't any nice dressings. And um, I think I, I had to stick to one dressing that was semi-okay for basically the whole year in school. Um, so by the end, I, you get tired of it. And if I were to think, you know, like I had to do this for not just one year, but many, many years, um, I can I can totally see why um, the, the kids in school, they they go to, um, you know, like they, they pick those burritos or they pick the pizza or the burger or the fries. Uh, it's, it's much tastier than the options that are available. <laughs> pizza and wrestling. I mean, that that was, you're speaking to the heart of the old me right there. I mean, that, that was my jam. Um, goodness gracious. We have a doctor working with us, Dr. Vanita Rahman at the Barnard Medical Center. She's on the show very frequently. And she tells the story about immigrating to the U.S. from India as a young child, not quite a teenager, and just how rapidly she put on weight by adopting that standard American diet, eating those sugary, high-fat foods that just were not at all in her uh, in in the culture over in India before she came here, and how difficult it was to kick that habit later in life. Um, yeah, I remember I got the I asked for oatmeal because that's what I grew up on, and there wasn't any oatmeal that my family could find or purchase um, that didn't have sugar in it. You know, like the, the, I guess now you can find Quaker oats, the the, the sugar free ones, and Whole Foods and all that. But um, we were out in the outskirts, um, food deserts, if you if you were to call it like that. And I literally, you know, like I was sieving through the oatmeal to get the sugar out because uh, my, my parents always ingrained in me, don't eat too much sugar. So 
you know, like having to, to, to sieve out the sugar from the oats. I mean, that's how it starts, right? Oh, yeah. And you're right. I mean, the, the little oatmeal packets, uh, you know, the blueberry, the cinnamon swirl, the, you know, maple flavor, which doesn't even have any maple syrup. It's just all brown sugar, basically. I mean, it's just it's insane to me. And yet and yet oatmeal is still on those boxes, those packets, you know, still pushed as a healthy breakfast, um, you know, heart healthy. So. Ah, it, it just seems so crazy to me. Um, AJ, before I was uh, this morning, I was going through, I was like, all right, well, what what do we want to talk about during this interview? So I started to pull up some statistics and I came across one that's been quoted quite a bit. And it is that 95% of diets fail. All right. People attempt to lose weight and then inevitably they fail at it 95% of the time, or at least that success is not sustained. Why is it that these popular diets, the Jenny Craig's, the Weight Watchers, the keto diet, South Beach, I mean, we could name them for days. Why is it that there is such a high failure rate with them? Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because when I when I Google that, sometimes I get as high as 98 percent fail. And we actually have at least three experts on the summit that are going to address that. And one of them is Dr. Joel Furman, who basically has said, if what you're doing isn't sustainable, it won't be permanent. So in other words, the problem with diets are that people go on a diet. If you go on something, ostensibly, you're going to go off it. And so one of the things that all the speakers recommend is to just stop dieting and just change your lifestyle because you have to be able to continue to do what you did to lose weight in order to maintain that weight loss. And as a matter of fact, it probably has to even be stricter when you think about it, because as a smaller person, you require less calories. That's why we brought on this year, Dr. James Hill, who was the co-founder of the National Weight Control Registry, who actually studies people like you and me that have succeeded successfully kept their weight off. And, and I'm a member of the registry. You should also apply if you don't, if you can, Chuck, because they want to study the people that have kept it off and figure out what characteristics do they have in common. And he is going to reveal that. We also have Dr. Susan Roberts for Tufts University, who with James Hill now just founded the International Weight Control Registry that's going to study people not just in the United States, but all across the world that have successfully kept the weight off. And, and the thing is, is that they're still doing the program that, that, that enabled them to lose the weight in the first place. The problem with keto, and, and this is one thing I'm so happy about on the summit, is even the, the speakers that weren't plant-based, they all basically said keto is a mistake. It's a horrible diet because it's a trick. It, it's The scale shows what looks like a weight loss, but it's not fat loss because basically what you're losing is water. So you might lose 10 pounds the first couple of days and think, oh my God, this is a miracle. But the minute you eat carbohydrate, which which is what we're supposed to eat in any form, whether it's a vegetable or rice or a potato, the weight shoots up because you're now holding back onto that water because for every molecule of, of starch or glucose, there's like five molecules of water. And so they're saying that this is not an effective strategy for sustainable weight loss. And, and, slower weight loss actually seems to be better, at least when it comes to maintaining, because it gives you that time to learn the good habits that you have to maintain once you've lost the weight. And what people don't realize, which is unfortunate, is this thing called metabolic disadvantage or calorie penalty that a couple of the speakers, I believe Dr. Rosanne Alvier and Dr. Jamie Kane, an obesity specialist in New York, talk about is that and this is so unfair, but it's almost like we're punished for being overweight in that when we lose weight, we require fewer calories than somebody at our exact weight that has never been overweight. It's not fair. Whether or not it completely corrects, the experts are not certain. But that's the thing. You actually have to almost be more diligent when you lose the weight than 
during your weight loss process. But if you if you don't continue what you did to lose weight, you're going to gain it back. And that's the problem with diets. And what I love is Dr. Rosanna Alviera did an amazing PowerPoint that showed why calorie counting always fails. So these weighing and measuring programs that cause that, that facilitate quick weight loss where people are counting calories, carbs, or points, yes, they work in the short term, but they backfire in the long term, not only causing you to regain the weight you lost, but more weight. And she will scientifically explain that once and for all. And you will hear other experts if, if you Google around and, and study show, you know, well, what is the number one indicator that somebody will be gaining weight in the future? A lot of times that answer is being on a diet right now, you know, because of that high failure rate that we were just discussing, you know, two, a matter of fact, two out of every three people who go on these diets, another study found that they actually regain more weight than they lost. So there you have that vicious yo-yo dieting uh, cycle that, that gets us into this obesity epidemic that we're in currently. Um, AJ, let, let me stick with you here for a second. I know that counting calories, not necessarily the biggest thing while eating a whole food plant-based diet. But again, you know, you look at how many calories the typical American eats during the day. Okay. The CDC will say for a man, it's roughly 2,500. That's still well above the 2000 recommended, but they have women at 1800. And so I kind of suspect that those numbers are a little bit skewed. Um, I'm not sure that I buy into that because others have done studies on this independently and found that the average caloric intake is 3,600. Um, I would be more inclined to agree with the 3,600 number, uh, given what, what what the statistics are about people being overweight and, and being obese. And so that kind of brings me to this question is how mindful does a person need to be about the food that they're eating and, and how big of a blinder are they wearing right now um, where they have completely blacked out the amount of fat and calories that they're eating every day? Oh, I think I think people are wearing blinders because they they want as Dr. McDougall, one of the experts says people want good news about their bad habits. So they you know, butter is bad, butter in the coffee, coconut oil is good. They see these, these ads and these memes, and they're like, Yeah, this is what I'm going to do. So I think they're they're not really informed in nutrition. But then again, doctors aren't really informed in nutrition for the most part, except for the ones that are on the summit. And I think you're right that people are eating far more fat and calories than they did, you know, even 20 years ago, for sure. Oh, 50 years ago, they were eating less. And I think part of it is restaurant eating, uh, fast food, like you say, and every corner, McDonald's, people are eating these kind of foods. And you're going to learn from Dr. Susan Roberts that these meals contain more fat and calories than some people need for an entire day. I kid you not. You could get a restaurant meal or a fast food meal that contains between 1,500 and 2,000 calories. And for a woman who is a little bit more mature and not very large. That's all you get for the day. And people are eating their entire calories in one meal. Oh yeah. I, I, I mean, I was well over 2000. I think my, my $20 Taco Bell order was somewhere in the range of 5,000 calories. I can't even remember, you know, the amount of fat that was in it, but it, it was just staggering. And then after I lost weight, I got curious and I started, you know, going around to the most popular chain restaurants and, and looking at the nutrition uh, facts that they have to publish by law about the, the, uh, items that are on their menu. And I will never forget, like looking at Denny's, um, where I used to enjoy the chicken fried steak back in the day. And that thing, I mean, that was like well over 2000, like that was like 3000 calories by itself, not to mention anything else that you're going to be eating with it. 
And people don't realize this when they're sitting down to eat the chicken fried steak. It just blows my mind. Toby, let me ask you a question. At the top of the show, you said that you have never struggled with your weight, and yet we hear you talk today, and you're so passionate about this. So why is it that you're so passionate about it? Where did where did this fire start burning for you? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I honestly don't know. My, my dad is a nutritionist, and he's been in the health space, of course. I always said, no, nah, that's not cool enough. I'll find my own way. And then over many, many detours, um, I found my way back to back to a similar topic now, obviously in a different format than um, what, what he did. Um, but um, yeah, I think something has to be done. You just see so many good people suffer. Um, I, I know my host family, they were such great, generous people, welcoming, um, you know, like a stranger from Germany who's got a different culture and just let them uh, let me live with them for a year. Um, and they struggle, right? They struggle back then. They already they had diabetes built. Um, they were unable to pay for the gas. We went on a trip down to Florida um, over spring break back then um, with the family. And on the way back, um, their credit cards ran out. And um, well, knowing what I know now, I, I would say, a lot about that credit card running out is medical bills, right? Having to to pay for all the medication. And um, obviously I helped out where I could. Um, I asked my dad for <laughs> emergency funds to get us all home, um, but uh, it's it's tough. And uh, and those people, they don't deserve it, right? It's, it's not their fault. And I think that's what resonated so much with AJ's story when I had her on my own summit, the, um, the plant food summit that I started um, before this one. Uh, and she said that people need to realize it's not your fault. Um, and that message needs to be shared. And the answers are luckily available, even though the mainstream media and the diet industry doesn't share them. But um, that's what we're trying to do. And obviously, along with it, hopefully help the world um, as well. So there's so many factors that go into it, but there's no shortage of, uh, of passion. Do you do you keep up with that family? Stay in touch with them? Yeah, unfortunately not. That was before internet days. That was before social media. So um, I, I I did Google their names. I try to find them, and um, I, I am I still connected with their neighbors. But even the neighbors moved to a different city now. Um, so unfortunately, I don't. I'm not in touch with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And really quickly, before we talk about one of the, what I feel is the most exciting aspects of, of the summit, um, I, I want for you, please, to share the story about how you first became introduced to the idea of eating a plant-based diet, because this is, you, you told us this story right before we started recording, and I was like, there's no way, this is, this is so crazy. Go ahead and, and share that with us. Sure, sure. So after university, I went into renewable energy because I wanted to do something sensible, uh, which led me to live in Singapore, where I met my now wife. Um, but the renewable energy business was shut down pretty much um, by the Kyoto Protocol not being extended. So then I was out of job and I was basically living out of a suitcase somewhere between Germany and Singapore and traveling back and forth on tourist visas. And in one of those trips, um, my, my then girlfriend, now wife, introduced me to a vegan bodybuilder and what are the odds of finding a vegan bodybuilder in uh, in Singapore? But we got talking, and I I've always been passionate about 
um, obviously the environment um, as well as somewhat the health aspect from my dad's side. And I got, I was curious, right? So he's just like, yeah, yeah, come, come, I'll show you. I got to show you Dr. Barnard. Have you heard of Dr. Barnard? I'm like, no, who, who is that, right? Okay, so then he showed me a video of Dr. Barnard talking about um, the link between dairy and cancer. And uh, in my late teens, my mom had cancer and passed away. And um, it was just like a light bulb moment. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is crazy. How did I not know about it? Or how did even my dad, who, who obviously back then um, studied nutrition way before the discussion about a plant-based diet even being sensible or possible was happening. So, um, and, and then it's just like a light bulb moment. We got to get it out there. How do we get it out there? And I'm like, we're in Singapore, you know, like online is the only way to reach anybody because Singapore is so tiny and uh, detached from the rest of the world. So uh, we're like, hey, you know, like look around, there's a summit, let's do an online summit. And um, because I had been working in the online space for a while um, after, you know, like stopping the environmental aspect, I had to somewhat survive. And that's how it all started basically. Um, figuring I can, if, if I can build websites for an agency, I can build a website with a purpose. And that's how the first summit started. And um, that's how I connected with Chef AJ a year later. And um, the rest is history. Yeah, it's, it's so cool that to think you are literally changing lives, potentially even saving lives, just because you happen to be introduced to a vegan bodybuilder in Singapore. I mean, just... Ah, life is, is so much fun. Um, you know what? While Toby was speaking, AJ, I started to wonder, I was like, I wonder, because you have such a great weight loss story as well. I wonder if you then, after you had lost weight, went back and started to do some research on those menus that are at those popular restaurants. Have you ever gone on on like a fast food website and, and pulled up the numbers and just had a jaw-dropping moment? I have because I, I teach classes with people and one of the modules is about eating, how to eat healthfully anywhere when you travel or go to restaurants. And we always tell them, do your research in advance, because as you said, you know, a mom and pop restaurant doesn't necessarily have to have the nutritional information online. But my understanding is if, if, a, if a restaurant has at least three locations, they have to have it. And so I would pull up the menus, for example, of McDonald's and a very popular vegan restaurant called Veggie Grill. And when you look at their most popular sandwich, each place, it's 770 calories. So when people think, oh, vegan, it's healthier. Well, not if it's fast food vegan. Both of these sandwiches, which aren't very big, 770 calories, 60 grams of fat. And how much of that fat is saturated? Let's see. Probably a, oh, wow. Yeah, like 20 grams of saturated fat. So people don't realize how much fat and calories are in these restaurant meals, which lack fiber, which are not very satisfying. And they can really pack on the pounds when you eat out at restaurants. Like restaurants use more sugar, fat, and salt than you ever would at home. And we know that that is what's addictive, the sugar, fat, and salt. Dr. Goldhammer talks in depth about how these are not foods, sugar, fat, and salt. They don't exist in nature in any concentrated form. They're chemicals that fool our brain satiety mechanisms, cause us to overeat. And that's really the problem. If people ate whole natural food, they wouldn't be in this pickle that they're in now. That's such an important point, though, that just because a food is vegan doesn't mean that it's healthy. I do worry with the increased popularity surrounding plant-based diets right now and the boom of plant-based products that you see on store shelves and, and fast food convenience restaurants that have plant-based items. I do worry that you're going to see more and more, uh, you know, vegan items that 
unfortunately then adhere to the standard American diet. As somebody who's so passionate about weight loss and healthy eating, a healthy plant-based diet, is that something, AJ, that you're also concerned with? I am. And I get, this is, I get, you know, people that are ethical vegans, which by the way, I am, I mean, 43 years, you don't do it for the environment. I didn't even, never even heard about the environment when I was 17 or the health aspects, but, but they're like, well, you know, you're making it too hard for people to be vegan because you're telling them to actually eat food. The thing is, is one of the things experts agree on whether they're plant-based or not is the processed food really isn't food. Some people can get away with eating a little bit of it and maybe not be overweight or have a disease, but we're not supposed to eat food from a can, a box, a bottle, or a bag. And you know, when you think about it, look, I'm, I'm for not eating animals, but our ancestors did eat ans animals, not to the degree they ate them today in the cruel ways that they're factory farmed, but they did. But one of the things that's really changed in the last 50 years, especially since World War II, is we didn't evolve eating processed food as a species. We're not supposed to be eating processed food. We're the only species, to my knowledge, that does other than maybe perhaps domesticated dogs and cats. And we're the only species other than domesticated dogs and cats that suffer with weight because we're not eating the food that's intended for our species, which, by the way, if it is animal products, it's certainly not dairy. It's certainly not to the degree that we are eating it. So we need to get back to eating food. And so while I'm happy when people don't eat animals for any reasons, I think they can go down a very dangerous path when they rely on these vegan processed and convenient foods, which are just as addictive and delicious as their non-vegan counterparts. And until people understand the work of, say, Michael Moss or or Dr. David Kessler in their books, that th these foods are addictive. They're designed to be addictive. Whether you struggle with your weight or not, most people are going to struggle with them. You know, you bet you can't eat just one. Sugar, fat, and salt. You don't find that in nature, at least not together, and it's certainly not in any concentrated forms. And for me, it wasn't even about weight. When I read these books and found out that the processed food industry was purposely hijacking our brain chemistry and taste buds for that their profit, I stopped eating it just on principle because I don't want to be anybody's experiment. And, and it's just, I think that, you know, knowledge can empower people, but again, that addiction to it is so strong that even people that don't struggle with their weight, it is very hard to give up these hedonic, hyperpalatable processed foods. Yeah. And so the brain winds up getting hooked on that fat, that salt, that sugar, but then your schedule also then begins getting hooked on the convenience of these ultra processed foods that are so readily available. And I think that a lot of times when somebody wants to explore eating a healthy plant-based diet, they are kind of at a loss when it's time to go in the kitchen and to learn how to cook. Um, that's kind of the cool thing about this summit this year is kind of new is like, not only do you have these experts, you know, these doctors telling you about the latest science, but some of them are actually stepping into the kitchen themselves and practicing what they preach. Right. It's, it's so exciting because, you know, it's uh, Toby and I last year did another summit called the truth about GI health, because we found that a lot of people were telling us after the second truth about weight loss summit that their obstacle, well, they said their number one obstacle was the food. They didn't know how to make it. They didn't know how to cook. It didn't know how to make it delicious, but their other obstacle was that they had a lot of GI problems that made it hard to eat vegetables. So we did a summit in between and we found out that the, the same thing that is good for weight loss is good for, for GI health. And so it, it's not like these doctors are going to tell you things that are different than if you had heart disease or diabetes, your GI health, that what is good for your overall health is going to be good for your GI health. It's what's going to be good for weight loss. And so at the GI health summit, we actually had 
a doctor, a gastroenterologist, Dr. Edwin McDonald in Chicago, who is a trained chef, and he did a cooking demo, and it was so popular. And we thought, well, let's get more doctors in the kitchen, because if they can see their doctor can cook, maybe they'll be inspired. So instead of having just three cooking demos, we have a cooking demo every day. We end the day with a cooking demo, so we have nine. And of course, we brought back some of our favorite chefs, but most of the cooking demos are done by doctors, and not all of them went to culinary school. And the idea is, is you, you have this doctor, he or she is busy, but they can show you how to make a, a delicious meal that isn't complicated, that you don't have to have gone to culinary school to make. And I think it's really inspiring watching the doctors cook. I, I think so too. And I think that as somebody who then is exploring this and wants to get in touch with their health to see a doctor do this, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of confidence that comes with that. So I think that that is really unique and, and an important aspect um, of the summit, which by the way, is February 13th through 21st. Toby, uh, you're a web developer. Did I hear you? Would I be correct in assuming that you put this website together yourself? Yeah. I'm a one man production crew. Yeah. I feel your pain, my friend, but you know what? You are to be commended because it is, it is such a, a fantastic website. I want to go through here before we wrap up. And uh, here we go. Look at some of the uh, speakers that you have at the conference. And I, I will tell you, uh, AJ, just looking at the at the lineup here for day one, I mean, you are leading with some heavy hitters like Dr. Joel Furman close to the top of the list there. That's incredible. Yeah, he comes back too on day on the last day. And then you come down to day two, you just, Dr. Hanna Kaliova, she's uh, doing some phenomenal research here um, recently. Matter of fact, I'll be speaking with her and Dr. Neil Barnard about this new study uh, that they just put out uh, looking at vegan and Mediterranean diets and which is better for weight loss. So that'll be an interesting conversation. By the way, I'll be uh, on the summit on the second day as well. And, and thank you both so much for having me uh, for that. And then, uh, Dr. McDougal will be there and uh, Cyrus Kambata, I mean, for mastering diabetes, there's just so many wonderful people uh, who are going to be taking part in this summit. And uh, AJ, if somebody wants to register, where do they go? Oh, they go to the truthaboutweightloss.org. We can provide you with a link if you like. They, they can click and just boom, and it's free. After all, I'd you can't beat that price. And uh, we'll drop a link to that also in the episode notes. So go ahead and uh, register today. Absolutely free. Nine days full of just life-saving, life-changing information. And, and prizes. I, and what, what's that? Prizes. And prizes. That's right. And prizes, right? So let's make it fun and healthy. Instant Pot donated three Instant Pots and three air fryers. And we were giving away four bottles of California balsamic vinegar every day because we actually interact live. Even though the interviews, of course, they have to be pre-recorded. We're interacting live the whole time the summit is being delivered through the chat feature and in between the episodes. That's great. And the interactivity. So if somebody has a question during the summit, they can just throw it right in the chat box. You'll be there. You can field it. You can help them out. This is fantastic. What a great concept. And thank you both so very much for, for being here, talking about this, sharing your stories. It's just remarkable the way that you are using your own journeys now to help the lives of thousands of others. My hat is off to you both. Thank you. Thank you. And you can find a link to register for the Truth About Weight Loss Summit in the episode notes. Let's switch gears now and talk about heart health. Heart health and obesity, they really do go hand in hand. 
because the heavier a person is, the more likely they are, the more at risk they are to develop complications with their heart. There's no disputing the fact that the diet has a tremendous amount to do with whether or not a person develops heart disease. It's just a fact, it's really not in dispute, and yet, there is still so much that physicians don't know in terms of food and heart health, what the real data is showing, what these studies that we talk about on this show week after week, what they are saying. And so Dr. Neil Barnard joined me recently. He and I taped a special segment for the Medical Society of Washington, D.C. And we released that to the physicians here in the nation's capital. And now we are going to play this for you as well. And the video for this is up on Facebook and on YouTube. So this is a presentation, really, that he and I did for the Medical Society of D.C. And it's about seven things that patients wish that their doctors knew about food and heart health. And these seven things could go so far in helping somebody who is struggling with their heart. Maybe they do have that excess weight to lose, or maybe they have diabetes or high cholesterol, high blood pressure, you name it, those markers. These seven questions, answers to them can go so far to helping the person out. Now, this segment was geared toward physicians, but as a patient, I think that you too will get a lot out of this as well. So here now, my conversation with Dr. Neil Barnard, seven things you wish your doctor knew about food and heart health. Welcome to a special episode of the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee in conjunction today with Washington Healthcare on Wednesday, or better known as WOW, MSDC's weekly program devoted to informing and connecting physicians in the Washington, D.C. region. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll, and riding shotgun with me today on this highway to health is Dr. Neil Barnard. He is an MSDC board member and an alternate delegate for MSDC's AMA delegation. And with that, we welcome Dr. Barnard to the show. Thank you so very much for being here today, my friend. Hi there, Chuck. It's great to be with you today. It's great that you are here because it is February and that means American Heart Month. A lot of people are talking about heart health. And so that is why we are pleased to bring you this special edition of WOW titled What Patients Wish Their Doctors Knew About Foods and Heart Health. You know, I can think back to being a patient myself and always being given this vague prescription for just go on a healthier diet, make sure that you include more fruits and more vegetables. But that was about the extent of it. And when I was overweight, I didn't really know what to quite make of that. So I'm glad that you're here today to kind of clear up some of this confusion. And as a matter of fact, we've gone through Dr. Barnard and picked out seven of the most asked questions when it comes from patients to their doctors about heart health, if you're up for answering them today. Let's do it. All right. Well, the first question is a really good one, and it's probably where a lot of people start. And that is, do high blood pressure and high cholesterol always have to be treated with medicine? You know, this is a huge question because patients are handed a prescription. They think, do I really have to take this? And it should be said right up front that blood pressure lowering medications and cholesterol lowering medications are, are powerful, effective, and sometimes life-saving. But on the other hand, some patients may be able to do without them. And let's start with a classic research study 
that got everybody's attention back in the late 1990s, the DASH study, Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. They were taking advantage of the observation that certain people following certain kinds of healthy diets really tended to have really healthy blood pressure. They brought in a large group of people, more than 400, and they asked them to do different things. Increase fruits and vegetables, reduce meat, reduce fat. Let me show you the results. Okay, keep in mind, we're going back here more than two decades. Um, the top curve that you see here is systolic blood pressure in patients who didn't do anything. They're in the control group. And as you can see, what happened to their systolic blood pressure? Not much of anything. Uh, the second line is people who increased fruits and vegetables. And as you remember, fruits and vegetables naturally have little sodium, a lot of potassium. Okay, their blood pressure comes down a little bit. Then that bottom line there, that's the systolic blood pressure of people who do two things. They're increasing their fruits and vegetables, but they are also reducing meat, reducing fat. And what happens? Their systolic blood pressure drops really quite significantly. Now, same with diastolic. These are the same changes in diastolic blood pressure. And the drop in blood pressure was noted within 14 days. So it's very, very fast. And a lot of these folks are not going to end up on on blood pressure medications at all. Let me say a little bit about how this works. Okay, you know that sodium raises blood pressure, right? It increases the blood volume. Okay, uh, and there's a lot of sodium in some foods, but not really so much in plant-derived foods. Okay, even look at that potato at the bottom, 13 milligrams of sodium in an entire potato, that's almost none. But turn that potato into potato chips, uh-oh, that's where the sodium comes in, 330 milligrams. Uh, even worse, cheese, huge amounts of, of sodium in cheddar and Edam in Velveeta, lots and lots of sodium. You want to get away from those kinds of foods. The other thing, and this is something that seems to have been omitted from many doctors' medical education, and that's the effect of, can I just put it this way, grease on your blood pressure, um, fat in foods particularly the thick saturated fat, causes your blood to become more viscous, more thick. It takes more effort for the heart to push it along and to, to create proper circulation. On the other hand, avoiding fat, as they were doing in the DASH study, reduces blood viscosity, increases blood circulation, and reduces blood pressure. Okay, so what are we doing with the plant-based diet? We are reducing sodium, exchanging it for blood pressure, lowering potassium. We're doing, we're also reducing blood viscosity and that helps lower blood pressure too. And these very same changes will also tackle, tackle cholesterol because vegetables and fruits don't have any cholesterol. They don't have any animal fat. And when people go toward a more plant-based diet, their blood pressure comes down, their blood cholesterol comes down. Uh, pretty predictably. Will you be able to do without medications? You've got to monitor your patients and see where they are. If they're not at target, you may have to add medications. If they reach target, you probably don't. So back to you, Chuck. The next, well, I think that the natural follow-up to that would be, is a question that we get asked so often on the show is, well, what about eating out. You know, so many of, of, of the patients, they want to eat out. They want to enjoy time with their friends, their family, but you go out to eat and you know that oftentimes those menus are just loaded up with sodium. So what advice should doctors be giving to patients on that end? Well, the lesson from the DASH trial really was you want to do two things. You want to increase vegetables and fruits, 
because no matter how you do it, you're going to be getting more potassium in your diet. But the lower sodium varieties, as you're hinting at, are always going to be better. But don't just add vegetables and fruits. Get away from the meats and the fatty foods to the extent you can. So if you're going out to eat, the more you have a plant-based option, the, 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 the better off you're going to be. All right. So let's turn now to another big issue that a lot of people have, and that is diabetes. And obviously we know that diabetes leads to heart disease there. So can diabetes also be reversed? Um, happily, the science on this has moved along enormously, and our own team has been instrumental in that, if you don't mind me saying so. Back in 2003, uh, NIH asked us Gave, well, gave us a grant to, to look at uh, a better approach to type 2 diabetes. We brought in a large group of people. Half of them went on a completely plant-based diet. The others went on a, what I'm going to call a conventional diet. And the conventional diet meant limit calories. You know the drill. Uh, don't eat too much carbohydrate. Avoid bad fat, meaning saturated fat and trans fats. That was the conventional approach. The experimental approach was a plant-based diet, meaning no animal products at all. So it was vegan, no meat, no dairy, nothing. Uh, oils were kept low too, and we favored low glycemic index foods. Now for practitioners who are not too sure what that means, white bread tends to spike your blood sugar. That's high glycemic index. Uh, rye bread is more gentle on your blood sugar, pumpernickel even more so, that's lower glycemic index. So the low glycemic index foods are things like pumpernickel bread, uh, beans. In fact, all the legumes like lentils and peas, very good. Uh, fruits, surprisingly, even though they're sweet, they're pretty low GI too, meaning they don't spike your blood sugar too much. Okay, so no animal products, minimize oils, low glycemic index foods, and what happened? Uh, looking at hemoglobin A1C, as you know, we want it to be below seven for people with diabetes. Our people were around eight to start. And the red line here shows the conventional diet. They did well. They had a drop of about 0.4 absolute percentage points. But the blue line were the people on the plant-based diet. They dropped three times more uh, by 1.2 absolute percentage points or even a little bit more. Um, and that really showed that you can get diabetes under control. And I want to show you, this is Vance. Vance uh, was one of our very first research participants. And he went on a plant-based diet, described it as surprisingly easy because he didn't have to count calories or count carb grams. He lost 60 pounds over about a year on the plant-based diet, stopped his diabetes medications, got his A1C down from 9.5 to 5.3. And this taught us a lesson that in some of our participants, we're gonna start seeing something with this more powerful dietary approach that we weren't used to seeing, and that was diabetes going away uh, for all intents and purposes. Now, Velveeta is waiting around the corner, so as are all kinds of other unhealthy foods, so you can get diabetes back. But uh, what we, we do see many, many people who get to target without medications if they follow enough of a diet change. Now, the word reversal is not really a technical term. It's just the way the patients think that I don't have diabetes anymore. So. Yeah, so the short answer is yes. Um, for many people, the diabetes will improve to the point that you would never know they had it. Um, but diabetes is a serious condition. And if you don't get there with diet alone, you'll want to think about medication for uh, absolutely. 
Now let's go ahead and uh, talk about type one versus type two diabetes. In the study that Vance participated in, were that exclusively type two diabetic uh, patients or were there type one diabetics uh, participating as well? That was all type two. Um, but you're anticipating something really important, Chuck, which is that uh, people with type one, which as you know, I mean, they, they effectively don't have insulin in their body anymore because the pancreatic beta cells are gone. Um, people with type one have been experimenting with the same diet. It will not eliminate their need for administering insulin, but it will very likely reduce their doses. Um, we have seen, in fact, we recently published a case report where we saw a number of, of patients who were changing their diet to adopt this low-fat plant-based diet that was designed for type 2, but they're applying it to type 1, discovering that their insulin requirements drop sometimes 30 or 40%. Um, why is that? What we believe is happening is that they really have two conditions. Their body isn't making insulin, but also their muscle and liver cells have a, a measure of insulin resistance, and that's what the diet is, is addressing probably. Um, the other piece of this for type 1 is what kills you with type 1 diabetes similar to type two, it's cardiovascular disease. Um, and you don't want a drop of cholesterol or animal fat in your diet. You wanna baby those arteries. So a plant-based diet is um, very clearly established for type two diabetes, but also I would say the diet of choice for type two. Now you're talking about a plant-based diet. Obviously that's going to contain uh, fruit, all right, complex carbohydrates. But I know that a lot of times um, physicians and patients alike are, are scared to introduce that into their diet because it does contain sugar. What do we know as far as eating whole fruits when you do have type two diabetes or type one for that matter? Um, this is gonna surprise people, but I'm gonna say fruit gets a complete green light. Um, it does have natural sugars in it, but it is, uh, generally speaking, low glycemic index for most varieties of fruit. And for people to say that, that their whole approach to controlling diabetes is to focus on minimizing natural sugars, they're missing the point. In fact, Chuck, let me, let me bring you back my slides. I want to show you really the cause of the insulin resistance that is the fundamental part of uh, type 2 diabetes. This purple oval is a cell. Let's call it a muscle cell. And that muscle cell, as all practitioners know, it's insulin resistant. It's not responding to insulin. Okay. So here's the deal. Muscle cells function on glucose. That's their normal fuel, but that glucose cannot penetrate the cellular membrane. It, the, the glucose approaches, it just effectively bounces off. Um, so to get the glucose into the cell, I need a key and the key is insulin and it attaches to a receptor on the cellular surface. That insulin key then activates the receptor that then causes uh, little channels to open up on the surface of the cell and the glucose enters. That's normal glucose metabolism. So what could go wrong? What goes wrong is that here in America, my dinner looks like that and my lunch looks like that and my breakfast looks like that and there's a lot of grease in my foods and if you add it up, there is all kinds of fat in these foods. And so with a fatty breakfast and lunch and dinner, the fat will build up inside the cells. This is microscopic accumulations of fat referred to as intramyocellular lipid, fat inside muscle cells. The same thing happens in liver. 
hepatocellular lipid. Uh, we can measure it with magnetic resonance spectroscopy. And the more this fat builds up inside the cell, the more you have insulin resistance. So the insulin key, if you will, still attaches to the receptor. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The insulin is non-functional. The cell is insulin resistant. So let's say I do what the research participants did. I get the animal fat out of my diet. I keep the vegetable oils to a bare minimum too. And what happens? The fat dissipates. And as the fat goes away, the insulin can return to normal activity or close to it. And then your insulin is functioning again, the glucose, glucose comes back into the cell and everybody is happy. So my point is that when you get the fat out of your diet, when you get the fat out of your diet, stop worrying about whether you have an apple or a peach or a pear, get the grease out of your diet, get the animal products out, keep the fried junk out. The fat that's built up in the cells will start to dissipate your insulin sensitivity will return, your insulin resistance starts to go away, and your blood sugars will fall. And that's why the low-fat plant-based diet is much more effective than the more conventional approach. And you cited uh, some meat on there, particularly chicken, which is viewed as, as being a, a health food, uh, more or less, but it has more fat in it than people would suspect, regardless of whether or not it's baked or fried or however it is that a person is cooking it, correct? Um, yeah. Uh, Americans eat more than a million chickens per hour. They are laboring under the idea that this is somehow healthier than a burger. And uh, you could make an argument that it is, uh, except when you look at the numbers, take chicken, chicken breast, throw away all the dark meat, take off the skin. And that chicken breast is still almost a quarter fat as a percentage of its calories. And that chicken fat will lead to insulin resistance, just like beef fat will. All right, let's move on now and talk about another big chronic disease that is plaguing so many of uh, us here in America, and that is heart disease. So we've talked about diabetes and the benefits of changing your diet there. Now let's talk about heart disease and whether or not that can in fact be reversed. What do we know about that? Yes, um, this is really, I think, one of the most exciting things that has occurred in research in the past 30 years. Um, we talked about the first question was about, can I lower my cholesterol and my blood pressure uh, without medications? The second one was about diabetes. All three of those actually feed into heart disease. And so if I'm controlling those three risk factors, I'm going a long way toward improving heart disease. And this whole question of reversal was put to the test back in 1990. Let me show you. Uh, Dr. Dean Ornish, uh, a real medical genius, if you ask me, uh, working in California and uh, with the University of California, San Francisco, brought in people who had had angiograms for current heart disease. And his question was, can I make that ugly looking artery that you see at the bottom look like that nice clean artery that you see at the top? And he wanted to do this not with surgery, not with procedures at all, um, and not with medication, but with diet. So he did four things, vegetarian foods, and we've already seen their benefit for cholesterol and blood pressure and for diabetes, uh, half hour walk every day, that sounds easy, manage stress, I guess that's why he didn't do the study here in Washington, DC, um, just kidding, uh, avoid tobacco, but, but that was the whole program. So he brought in people, they had heart disease, uh, plant-based diet, regular walking, uh, managed stress, no smoking at all, and at a year, the results were phenomenal. Total cholesterol dropped 24%. Good. 
LDL cholesterol, 37% drop. This is kind of statin territory, but, but this was done without medication, just with diet and lifestyle. Uh, your average person lost 22 pounds in a year. But what really made history with this study was that everyone had a repeat angiogram at 12 months. And they then measure the tiny little trickle of blood that gets through the coronary arteries. And they found that the arteries were actually reopening to such an extent that you could see a measurable improvement in 82% of patients in the first year. And so that really made medical history and that also made Med Medicare decide <clears throat> that they would pay for this program for people who wanted it. So um, yes, the, the short answer is heart disease can be reversed. And so here's the interesting thing. I, I remember speaking with Dr. Ornish a couple of years ago at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, and, and like you, was just absolutely blown away by his research. But I think that for a doctor or physician who's watching this right now and the idea of a plant-based diet may be new to them, I think it's also important to point out that you have major, major dignitaries who have adopted his practices and seen improvements in their own health, right down to and including former President Bill Clinton, who has just dramatically improved his own health uh, by working with Dr. Ornish. You know, when when uh, President Clinton first got into office, he was notorious for stopping by the McDonald's right by the White House. And then he got into uh, some health troubles and, and now has changed his ways with Dr. Ornish and, and is just doing phenomenally. Yes, um, I think the question that you've raised, Chuck, is really important is, is, is it easy, is it acceptable, will people do it? And some of the evidence comes from the fact that people that everybody knows have had tremendous results with it and really embrace it. Um, but I asked that very same question. When these results were about to be published, I was, Prior to that, I, I was working at the George Washington University um, over there in the what used to be called the Burns Building um, and uh, at Penny, uh, Pennsylvania, 22nd, uh, 22nd. And I called up Ornish and I said, you know, uh, every doctor is going to agree that this will work um, because you're taking the cholesterol out of the diet, you're taking the animal fat out of your diet. But doctors will say or they'll imagine that nobody will do it. Nobody will adhere to it. It sounds too strict. So Dr. Ornish invited me to come out to California and I actually did a, a follow-up study with him that was published in 1992, where we asked all of the patients in both the experimental group and the control group, how do you feel about the foods you're eating? Um, how much trouble is it to make them? What do you think you'll do in the future? What does your family think? And what we found actually was that, um, first of all, um, the control group, which was not following a vegetarian diet at all. They were following sort of their, their doctor's best guess, uh, take the skin off your chicken, eat more white meat, less red meat. The control group grumbled. They said all the joy of life was gone, no more steak, no more cigars, um, and they weren't getting any benefit. They weren't. Their cholesterol levels weren't really changing in the control group. But in the intervention group that was going vegetarian and so forth, they grumbled. Um, they said, you know, they did have to learn some new tricks in the kitchen. How long did it take you to get used to a new diet? They said, oh, about four weeks or so, four, four or five weeks. They felt totally used to it. And because they were losing weight and their chest pain, those who had, had angina, it disappeared, gee, about a month, something like that, um, that or, or sooner in many cases, that their angina was just gone. And they 
I got to tell you, your dinner tastes really great if your heart isn't killing you. Um, and they came to really, really embrace it. And now Dr. Ornish has had patients who have followed this for years, even decades. And um, people's tastes accommodate and they come to really like these foods very much. It doesn't mean that some people may not goof up a little bit, but a lesson that I learned is that if you tell your patient, just do a little bit, make a little change, um, take the skin off your chicken, no patient will go further than that. Um, but if you say, I want you to follow a completely vegan diet, that's the healthiest. Some of your patients will do it. Some patients will get closer to it, but they will do a whole lot more than if you ask them to just make a halfway step. It's sort of like if you say to a patient, cut down on smoking, nobody's going to quit. Uh, some of them will cut down, some won't. If you say to the patient, let me encourage you to quit smoking. Some patients will, some might cut down, but they're all going to be better off than they were that it would have been if you asked them to just do a halfway measure. So bottom line, uh, patients embrace the diet. Lots and lots of people are doing it and Medicare will pay you to administer. And that can be such a, a tricky one. Um, and, and I know this from being 420 pounds at one point in my life is that when a doctor approaches you with the idea of doing something, um, it can seem overwhelming at first. Absolutely. If the doc says push all of your chips to the middle of the table, just go all in on this, you know, there's going to be that natural resistance. Uh, personally, from experience here, I can tell you that I did not have success until I did push every single last one of my chips into the middle of the table and go all in. Um, the halfway measures, just as, as you suspected there, um, did not necessarily work the greatest for me, but it did kind of ease my mind um, into the, the idea of, of being able to do this. And so it was an important step, but it certainly was not the solution. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sure does. Uh, let me provide a little motivation for any doctor who's saying, I'm not so sure. Um, this is uh, an image that you're seeing now. This is actually the image of a Cleveland Clinic surgeon. This is an angiogram of the chest of a surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, and what you see here is something that nobody wants to ever see. This is a diseased distal left anterior descending artery. This is a killer. Um, the surgeon in this case was, a, was the patient. He could not be stented because it was anatomically too extended. And he could not tolerate statins, what's, his, what's left. What's left is a low-fat vegan diet. He had no lipid-lowering medications. He followed the diet for 32 months, and this is his angiogram. Um, I got to tell you, the, the, uh, the ability of the body to heal is remarkable. Now, this, don't mean, this does not mean that you just send the patient on their merry way and you don't monitor them and you don't use medications when you can. You do, but the, the diet effects can really be very strong. Um, on your question to halfway measures, uh, let me tackle that um, directly, Chuck, if you don't mind. Um, the Mediterranean diet is a very sexy sounding diet that, that, that rolls off the tongue very uh, easily. Okay, let's, let's, let's follow the Mediterranean diet. Sounds fun. Ansel Keys at the University of Minnesota came up with this term, Mediterranean diet. I think because Southern Italy sounded a lot more <laughs> inviting than Minneapolis, perhaps. Um, and he had something to, to say for it. Um, when you look at the relationship of fat intake, which is here on the x-axis, to uh, heart disease deaths, uh, Italy looked pretty good. It's on the lower left. Look at the USA, upper right. A lot of fat in the diet, 
pretty high rate of heart disease mortality. Canada, Australia, England, a little bit better. Italy, much better. Not as good as Japan, but still pretty good. Um, so he came up with this idea of the Mediterranean diet uh, to um, focus on, on the diet really of Southern Italy and defined meaning plant foods, not too processed. Your dessert would not be pudding, it'd be fresh fruit. Uh, instead of butter, you'll use olive oil. Not too much dairy, not too many eggs, not so much red meat, uh, have some wine. That was kind of the idea. And he modeled it after the town of Nicotera in Italy. Um, so researchers have put this to the test. Okay, it's not vegan. It's not veg even vegetarian. It's just sort of going in that direction. What do they find? The Predimed study in Spain brought in 7,000 people, more than 7,000. Uh, they were all at risk for heart disease. 90% of them were overweight. And one third of them followed the, the, the Mediterranean diet that I described, plus olive oil. Another third, Mediterranean diet plus nuts. Another third, control. No, no diet changes at all. What did they find? Well, when you looked, oh, I'm sorry, the, the food that they recommended, oil, nuts, fruit, vegetables, fish, legumes, sofrito, which is a Spanish uh, kind of a tomato sauce. And they were getting away from the, the more unhealthy foods. Okay, what did they find? With regard to weight loss, they found a lot of nothing. Uh, the Mediterranean diet was not effective for weight loss. The weight loss over 12 weeks was a quarter of a kilogram on average, uh, not good. And when it came to mortality, all-cause mortality or cardiovascular mortality, in neither case did they get a p-value below 0.05. In other words, there was a suggestion of an improvement for the oil group, but it was not statistically significant. So the researchers were pretty disappointed that this Mediterranean diet even though the people were overweight, they weren't losing weight and, and mortality wasn't changed after many years on the diet. So they did come up with uh, a composite of any kind of cardiovascular event, a myocardial infarction, stroke, death and cardiovascular disease. And they did see benefit. Uh, control group 4.4%, olive oil down to 3.8, nut supplemented down to 3.4, okay, great. Um, this is not really a cause to crack open the champagne, but there's something there. Um, and that has kind of been the basis for the Mediterranean diet that people have been cheerleading about. Really, it's, it is nothing like what Ornish achieved. However, uh, some of the Predimed researchers did a, a really good thing, is they noticed that among these 7,000 and some people, some of them were following what they called a pro-vegetarian diet, meaning they were really emphasizing fruits and vegetables and nuts and so forth, and they really weren't eating a lot of meat, maybe none at all. In, among these 7,000, there are people pretty much getting toward vegan. Well, they then devised a pro-vegetarian scale and applied that to their numbers. And let me show you what they found. The more you went toward a plant-based diet, the lower your risk of all-cause mortality, and it was highly statistically significant. And for cardiovascular mortality specifically, same story. So the Mediterranean swell gets you a little ways, but when you're really bringing in the plant foods, getting away from the animal product, you're gonna do better. So our research team, let me finish with this. We just published these findings from a study where we brought in 62 people and half of them began a Mediterranean diet, half of them began a vegan diet. And after 16 weeks, they switched diets. 
So every patient did both diets and we could compare. And what we found was as they began, the vegan group was losing weight really very well. This is the first 16 weeks of the study. The Mediterranean group just inching down in their body weight from what, 97 to about 96 kilograms over 16 weeks, not good. Uh, then they stopped for four weeks and then they switched diets. Now the Mediterranean group is now vegan. They're going vegan, look at that. Suddenly their weight loss kicks in, but the group that had been vegan is now Mediterranean. What's happening to them? Their weight is coming back on. So the way I'm gonna interpret this is that the Mediterranean diet is just nothing like a plant-based diet and should not be prescribed for people for whom weight loss is a goal or for whom cholesterol lowering is a goal. It's just too weak to help. Uh, I will say that uh, when it comes to total cholesterol and LDL, a uh, vegan diet dramatically better than a Mediterranean diet. But when it comes to blood pressure, I do wanna say that there was some effect of the Mediterranean diet uh, nine points uh, on systolic, seven points on diastolic that actually was better than vegan. Don't know why, uh, but it's not as if the Mediterranean is a complete bust. It's just not as powerful. Well, I see the question right there on the screen. So that that is uh, another big one that I think I was personally alarmed when I, I heard um, a report that uh, artery disease uh, be, is beginning a younger and younger and younger. We're seeing that as the obesity epidemic continues to rage here in the state. So at what age really are we starting to see artery disease begin in, in patients? I have to say, Chuck, this is one thing that blew the scientific community away. Um, and the, re the, the research that was really pivotal here came from us, uh, Australia. Um, it was done by Michael Skelton and his group, and they looked at birth, uh, there were, uh, what you're specifically doing is with totally non-invasive sonography, you can measure the aortal, the aorta wall thickness in newborns. And they compare, the researchers compared uh, mothers and who were overweight and mothers who were at a normal weight um, uh, for, for, for pregnancy uh, time points. And those women who were particularly overweight, more so than one would expect uh, during pregnancy, gave birth to children with thicker aortic walls. Meaning, what we believe is happening is that the maternal diet was affecting the, the infant, the growing infant, such that the, uh, the uh, arterial changes were occurring in gestation. So it's a peculiar thing to think of, but heart disease we should consider as actually starting uh, at birth or even beforehand. And the way to think of it, it's a dynamic process. The attack on the artery walls can wax and wane. The artery disease can get worse, it can get better. But what is not the case is that the heart attack that's, that arrived in a man of 55, it didn't start when he was 53. Those artery changes have been there since he was a child, a teenager, it's been starting and growing. And finally, uh, when he's 55, he uh, blows open one of his uh, atherosclerotic plaques and ends up with, a, with an MI. Um, no, this is, this is a lifelong disease process. And let's talk now about um, how, let me think about how best to phrase this. Let's uh, spin this and put some hope on it. So let's say that somebody um, has unfortunately had this for a number of years, decades even. 
Um, what effect if uh, will they see if they make diet modifications, even if they have had these clogged arteries now for more than 20 years, can they still see some benefit? Oh yes, um, Ornish's work, our work, and, and thousands of people have been doing this. And age does not seem to be a barrier. In other words, when a person has narrowed arteries, if they follow this healthful diet and lifestyle, get the animal products out, uh, build your diet from plant-based foods, you've got to quit smoking, not optional. Uh, and um, do lace up your sneakers to the extent you can. And you can also add medications if you need them. Um, age does not seem to be a barrier. Um, the, the ability to stabilize the arteries, uh, to reopen them to feel better uh, clinically um, does not seem to be limited by age. I want to tip my hat to Caldwell Esselstyn at the Cleveland Clinic, um, who has done a lot of work in people with really quite severe artery disease, showing that if they make sufficient dietary changes and lifestyle changes, I, I can't say you become bulletproof, but it is surprising to see the degree to which this disease can be improved and, and, and to which further cardiac, cardiac events can be prevented. And then back to the heart disease at birth, just to kind of put a bow on this, safe to say here that the idea of an expectant mother having, you know, free range to eat whatever she wants, probably not the best idea anymore. Not at all the best idea. And unfortunately, um, expectant mothers get all kinds of unsolicited advice from all kinds of people. And sometimes they get not such great advice uh, about what they should eat. And um, as I remember from my own medical education, we were really not taught very much about how to um, manage a pregnancy with regard to the nutritional needs of the mother or of the infant. And the old idea was make sure you're eating enough. And so people will throw all kinds of unhealthy things at pregnant women um, as if they're uh, forgetting that although you're eating for two, one of you is really very small. You don't need a huge amount of overnutrition for that child. And uh, the best evidence we have is that the same plant-based diet that's good for an adult also is appropriate for an adult who is pregnant and is growing another baby. Um, you do need vegetables and fruits and whole grains and beans, and you need your prenatal vitamins. That's not optional. Uh, you need the B12 and so forth, and that should continue while you are hopefully breastfeeding. Um, but uh, the whole idea that you just need uh, red meat for iron and so forth, that's that's gone out the window quite a long time ago. Let's pivot now back to diabetes. There was this notion that uh, type 1 uh, was childhood diabetes and type 2 was adult onset diabetes. But what is the data showing now as far as when diabetes actually begins? At what ages are we talking about here? Um, for type 2 diabetes, the we used to describe this as the disease for the over 40s. And I have to say um, that every clinician in practice is now horrified to see that people of 14, 15, 16, developing type 2 diabetes, and many more with prediabetes. Uh, so let's go up to New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, Kit Peterson and Jerry Schulman at the Department of Endocrinology at Yale brought in 26 healthy volunteers, and they did glucose tolerance testing on them and found that some were insulin sensitive, normal, some were insulin resistant, um, and here is the age. Okay, they're not over 40, they're not over 30, the average age in the 20s. They're not overweight either. Look, average uh, weight, 132 pounds, 141 pounds. These are skinny people, young people, and they did not have diabetes. These are healthy A1Cs. But what do we do? 
you through uh, MR spectroscopy, magnetic resonance spectroscopy, we can now look into the muscle cells and into the liver cells. And let me show you what we found. Um, every dot here on the left is a person. And we're looking at the intramyocellular lipid, the fat inside the muscle cells of these individuals. And these are the healthy individuals and these are the insulin resistant individuals. Now, as you know, the buildup of lipid inside your muscle cells is gonna distort your mitochondrial activity. These are, this is the healthy mitochondrial activity of the healthy controls and the diminished mitochondrial activity of the insulin resistant subjects. What am I saying? These are young people, late 20s. These are thin people. They haven't developed a lot of excess weight yet and they don't have diabetes, but the disease process is beginning and it's manifested as increased lipid inside their muscle cells, which you can measure. And it's already affecting their cellular biochemistry so that their mitochondria are not functioning as well. That means insulin resistance. So diabetes diagnosed at 35 or 40 was insulin resistance beginning, what, 15 years earlier or something like that. You can see insulin resistance in, in teenagers now. They may not have diabetes yet, but the disease process begins very, very early. It begins uh, very often in childhood. That's the bad news. The good news is our team worked with Kit Peterson and Jerry Shulman um, and used a plant-based diet in individuals who were insulin resistant. We used a plant-based diet over 16 weeks. We just published our findings in JAMA Network Open. Um, our patients got on Am the Amtrak train, they went up to New Haven and they went into the MR scanners and you can show that that intramyocellular lipid dissipates uh, to a great degree and the hepatocellular lipid dissipates as well. And let, let me pose the same question to you about diabetes that I did with heart disease. Diabetes, a chronic illness, people think that once they're diagnosed with it, they, they're going to live with it forever. And, and for many people, they, they do uh, for years and years and years. What do we know about the effectiveness of changing one's diet, making improvements there versus uh, you know how much improvement they can see down the line? Is this a, a case of it's best to tackle this sooner rather than later? Yeah, um, you want to tackle it right away. I hope, hope tackle it at diagnosis, um, or hopefully before, if you can, if you can prevent these conditions by helping your patients eat in a more healthful way. Um, I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota. My dad was an internist at the Fargo Clinic, and he specialized in diabetes. I never heard him say that a patient with diabetes got better. Um, the, the, the goal was just to minimize the complications. Um, our research and that of others has changed that scenario. We now know that if patients make enough dietary changes, this disease can improve quite dramatically and sometimes for all intents and purposes, go away. Um, that said, we respect this disease process in that it can be dangerous and that the side effects can be catastrophic. So we wanna make sure that we work really hard to support our patients. We also don't labor, uh, we, we don't force our doctors to labor on this alone. They need a team, they need, they need a good dietitian to guide the patient in making uh, these dietary changes. And hopefully they have a series of classes or other support that allows the patient to change. And, well, there we go. Uh, and it is important, uh, I should note, that uh, the patient and the doctor work very closely together, especially if you are beginning to see those improvements. You don't want to just 
drastically come off of all of your medication at once, you're going to want to wean off of that. So that's something that doctors are going to need to closely monitor, correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it is very, very often the case. It's, it's the rule, really, that when a person is on insulin and they begin a very low-fat, healthy, plant-based diet, a healthy vegan diet, uh, often within a matter of days or a week or two, you'll start to see hypoglycemia because the person no longer needs the dosage of insulin that they had been on previously when they were on a less healthy diet. So the doctor has to work with the patient to back them off their medications. That's true for insulin, it's true for self-phenylureas as well. So make sure you teach the patient how to recognize hypoglycemia um, and make sure that you are available to bring their medications down. Also counsel the patients that, that not everybody gets better really quickly. So you don't wanna throw your medications away. You wanna to work together and use the appropriate amount for the patient. All right, so now we've got all of that out of the way. That brings us to the seventh and final question. And that is now you've seen the evidence, you've seen the science, you're ready to get on board with that. But how do you start that healthy diet? Where do you start, Dr. Barnard? Okay. Um, we have developed a method that we've been using at the Barnard Medical Center, um, and it, it relies on helping the patient to adopt as healthful of a diet as possible. So that means fruits and grains and legumes and vegetables. Don't forget your vitamin B12 because you need it for healthy blood and healthy nerves. You don't need much, but you need 2.4 micrograms a day. So healthy diet, plant-based plus B12. Sounds like a tall order. Break it into two steps. And so when I'm counseling a patient, I will say to the patient, here's the evidence why it works. That takes maybe 90 seconds or two minutes to describe how, how a diet will help their diabetes. Then you ask the patient to take a week and don't change their diet for the next seven days. Just check out the possibilities. I give them a piece of paper and the piece of paper says breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, and their assignment, fill it out. Just think of things that have no animal products in them that they might like. And then our dietitian will sit down with the patient and his or her reluctant spouse, and they'll start filling out the list together with, with breakfast items. And then they'll think about lunch items that they might like. Um, and if they don't like them, they don't write them down, but if they like them, fair enough. And they start thinking about restaurant food that might actually not have animal products at all. And there are in fact, Lots of choices from Italian to Latin American to Chinese rice, uh, tofu, vegetable dishes. Uh, you can go to a sushi bar and they'll make you a cucumber roll and an asparagus roll and a sweet potato roll and miso soup and so forth. So the patients are discovering that even fast food chains have some things that are healthy and don't have animal products in them. Okay, patient comes back after seven days, they've got their list. Step two, try it for three weeks. And the patient says what? Go all vegan for three weeks? Yeah. The patient says, easy. I already got my list. That's, that's no, no problem. I can do anything for three weeks. At the end of three weeks, the patient comes back and two things will have happened. Physically, they are healthier. Their cholesterol is coming down. Their blood pressure is coming down. If they've got diabetes, their glucose is coming down. But the other thing is that their attitude about food has changed. Unlike every other diet that was kind of drudgery, this one is sort of an exploration for them. Their tastes are adapting. They're seeing new products and new books and new recipes and new websites and new apps and things. And it really becomes fun for them. So uh, break it into two steps. Check out the possibilities for a week, then a three-week test drive. And if your practice does not have a good dietitian to refer to, get one because they will do the heavy lifting for you and you can take the credit.
<laughs> Phenomenal point. Um, and my last question to you is this. Um, say that there is a physician who is watching this, listening to this right now, and they're still maybe just a little bit skeptical of the idea of, of promoting um, the idea of eliminating all animal products from a person's diet. Um, what would your suggestion be to that physician? Would it be kind of the similar advice that you just recommended uh, to patients where you just give it a, a test drive and see what happens? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's right. And doctors should try it themselves as well. Um, and what you often discover is that other diets you've been doing are sort of circling around it. As we've described, a Mediterranean diet, a DASH diet are sort of semi-plant-based anyway. And the results are um, not usually super impressive. And when people go further, they're really delighted about it. Keep in mind, the patient is the person who's got the heart with the disease. Um, that's a person who wants to live. Um, and when we can give them tools that they can put to work, they are so grateful to you as the practitioner. Now, they may decide not to. That's okay. You don't fire them from your practice. You still care about them. But give them some tools. Uh, give them some support. Give them somebody that they can call when they have questions. For us, uh, that's our dietitians, um, but uh, they will really thank you. We are now with food, where we were a generation ago with tobacco. Um, I remember as a resident at, at GW, uh, we talked a lot about cutting down and so forth and quitting seemed kind of extreme. That's where we are now with food. To, to quit eating steak sounds extreme, but those people who do, their hearts are pretty glad about it. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Neil Barnard, thank you so very much for joining us here. A special episode of the exam room for Washington Healthcare on Wednesday, my friend. Greatly appreciate it. As always, this has been so enlightening. Thank you, Chuck. Again, you can find a link to view that entire interview on YouTube in the episode notes. Dr. Barnard put together a great presentation. You can see all of the slides and the data that he was referencing. You can see that up on the screen for yourself. Just go ahead and click that link in the episode notes. And again, don't forget to register for the Truth About Weight Loss Summit as well. There is a link for that in the episode notes as well. So we got to a lot on the program today. I hope that you're feeling educated and inspired. I often do, often, I always do as a matter of fact, when we do these shows. It is truly the greatest thing in the world to be able to share this information with you in hopes that you then can use it to live a healthier life for yourself and inspire others to follow suit. We don't have to be trapped in this unhealthy obesity epidemic where lifespans are becoming shorter. We don't, it doesn't need to be that way. We can choose a healthier path and that is why we need to use the information that is on this show to go ahead and get started on that path. Help others, that's what this is about. And so if you wanna to continue to help others, one of the things you can do right now is to go ahead and subscribe to the exam room by the Physicians Committee. This very podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever shows are available, hit that subscribe button and please also leave a five-star rating because the more subscriptions and the more five-star ratings we receive, the easier it becomes for people who truly need this information the most to find it and become inspired to change their health. 
change their future, make it a brighter and healthier future, one that they never thought in a million years that they could achieve. But if you're listening to this right now, you and I both know, in fact, that dramatic change is possible. And it starts by arming yourself with the facts. So go ahead and hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star rating. And that's going to do it for us today. I want to say thank you one more time to Toby, Chef AJ, and Dr. Neil Barnard for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs> <laughs>